0: Welcome to the Plant-Based Canada Podcast. Join us as we talk with experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with Canadian doctors, dietitians, athletes, climate experts, and more to break down the evidence behind a whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps you can take in your effort to shift toward a healthier lifestyle. Today, I talk to Dr. Aisha Akhtar. Dr. Akhtar is a double board certified neurologist and preventative medicine specialist. She's the co founder, president, and CEO of the Center for Contemporary Sciences, a nonprofit that is catalyzing the replacement of unreliable animal testing with more effective human specific research techniques. Dr. Akhtar is a U.S. veteran. She previously served as the deputy director of the U.S. Army Traumatic Brain Injury Program, developing the Army's brain injury prevention and treatment strategies for soldiers. As a commander in the U.S. Public Health Services Commission Corps, Dr. Oktar frequently deployed to assist with national public health emergencies. For a decade, Dr. Oktar was a medical officer in the Food and Drug Administration, most recently in the Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats, implementing studies on vaccine effectiveness and safety, and using her top-secret security clearance to develop national preparedness strategies for public health threats. She's published in peer-reviewed journals, including The Lancet, Pediatrics, Journal of Public Health Policy, and Reviews in the Neurosciences. Dr. Akhtar is a fellow of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. She is the author of two books, Our Sympathy with Animals, On Health, Empathy, and Our Shared Destinies, and Animals and Public Health, which argues for the need for health institutions to include animals as part of the public in public health. More recently, her nonprofit, the Center for Contemporary Sciences, was instrumental in Congress passing the FDA Modernization Act, a bill which allows the FDA to consider non-animal drug testing methods instead of requiring animal tests for approval. If you enjoy this episode, please consider supporting our show through the link at the bottom of the show notes, or you can donate directly through our website. Aisha, I'm really excited to talk to you today. You've had a really interesting and, and prolific career. You're double board certified in neurology and preventative medicine. You worked for the U.S. military. You're the ceo of your own company and you're also a long-term animal welfare advocate so there's a lot to get into today thank you so much for taking the time to join the plant-based canada podcast
1: hi clint thanks so much for having me
0: so tell me about yourself how you grew up and and you know what really got you interested in neurology and preventative medicine in the first place
1: oh well that, that's always hard to answer because i never know exactly where my interest first stemmed. but i think I kind of always knew that I was going to be some going into the sciences in one way, biology or medicine, and then it just turned out ended up being medicine. But I think neurology especially fascinated me because it seems like one of the last frontiers of discovery. I mean, it's, you know, it's 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 not like learning the heart, which is just mechanics of of an organ. Neurology is learning, trying to understand psychiatry, psychology how the, the mind body connection works. And there's just so much to it. So it really fascinated me and preventive medicine because to be honest, I just, uh, I really wanted to work on large picture issues. Uh, and that's why I went into preventive medicine and public health as well. So I took my neurology background and applied it to larger public health issues.
0: When did the idea of animal welfare enter the picture for you and veganism and the veganism lifestyle?
1: Yeah, it was animal rights, actually. So um, I think I was always in love with animals since I was a little girl, and that that was just a natural. I sought out animals. I was fascinated with them. I rescued them when I was a little girl, whenever I saw an injured or orphaned animal. And when I was in high school, we had two cats who we absolutely loved. Um, but we never thought any further than the, the few animals that were wild around the my house or those two cats. I mean, my family is from Pakistan, and so we ate animals, they didn't think anything. Didn't think anything about the animals that we ate. But it wasn't until, um, again, this was in high school. Like we got kind of accidentally in the mail a story about what happened to one cow, and it was actually from PETA. It was called the story of the downed cow, and I read it. I was just absolutely horrified what this poor cow went through, what people did to her, and My mom read it, my one sister read it, then my other sister read it, and literally that night, my mom came down to the dinner table and said, that's it, I'm no longer serving meat in this house. And so we all agreed, we just didn't want to be a part of this kind of industry. And it just made sense because we looked at our cats, whom we absolutely loved. They were our family, they were our babies. And we realized there was no difference between our cats and cows and pigs and chickens and turkeys and every other animal that we ate. And that sort of sent me on, on this journey then, once I started to learn about this larger issue of how we connect, how we treat animals in industries, because it was all new. And so I started reading voraciously everything there was. And I started attending conferences and I became a true animal advocate from the age of 17
0: on. It's interesting that your mom kind of sparked the the change there because usually it's it's the individual themselves and then there's pushback from the family. Switching gears, you you served in the military too. So you were part of the US the US Army Traumatic Brain Injury program. What uh, what was that experience like?
1: But I, I, me and the military, we're not exactly the best match <laughs> because I'm really very individualistic, which of course is not really what you know they want from people in the military. I actually joined the military after I worked for ten years at the Food and Drug Administration, and I was just kind of ready for a change. And I went and and accepted a job at the Army. To be the deputy director of their traumatic brain injury program. And it was really, I thought this would be a nice change. We were there to help kind of treat soldiers who and who suffered from traumatic brain injury. And as you can imagine, traumatic brain injury is a huge problem, not just for US soldiers, but soldiers all over the world and for non-soldiers, right? And we know it's for for and for football players, for kids, and so on. And, um, you know, it, it sort of struck me, and this is a couple of things that struck me that ultimately led me to, to start this organization. We're a nonprofit organization, the Center for Contemporary Sciences, but that despite the military arguably spending hundreds of millions of dollars bashing the heads of animals in experimentation for, to try to find treatments for head injuries, there's not a single effective treatment for head injury anywhere for anyone. There's only symptomatic treatment, treatment that can help with some of the symptoms, but nothing that actually treats the disease itself. So, you know, it it was frustrating. I tried to to suggest that maybe there are better ways to do some testing and research while I was there, and it was, you know, that that part was a little frustrating because they're just like a, any other governmental bureaucracy. They weren't willing to change or not even willing to hear contrary voices or opinions
0: well speaking of uh, government bureaucracy you mentioned that you were uh, you worked for the FDA so you were the uh, medical officer for the FDA's Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats can you tell me about the role that you had there and, and how you what kind of work you did while you were there
1: yeah so what I did was basically to help prepare the country U.S. for emerging threats and that means pandemics that means any kind of bioterrorism attacks, any kind of, you know, major, even I would say like radiation attack or something like that, nuclear attack. And what, what you know, so my job was to think about what kinds of medications, vaccines do we need to stockpile in preparation? And then how do we ensure that they actually are safe and they actually will work in people? So there was a this was another factor that led me to to start the Center for Contemporary Sciences you know we were preparing for these threats and having drugs and vaccines created but of course you can't exactly give people smallpox or give people you know um, a pandemic type of virus to see if the vaccine is going to work for them so we, You know, we knew that we had to have systems in place to check to see if these vaccines and drugs would work after the fact, after they're actually used in an emergency. And part of the reason why we needed to do that was because we knew that the animal testing, even if they pass the animal test, it doesn't mean they're actually going to be safe and effective in humans. And so it really honed down again that animal testing was just so non-predictive, not very effective. In really treating our diseases. And so that was another big thing for me was really to work to replace the use of animal testing with more effective methods that are not only better for human health, but obviously much kinder towards animals as well.
0: So, so obviously, you alluded to it several times, you're a huge animal w- welfare advocate, and you specifically speak out against animal testing, as you have been. What kind of implications does animal testing have from, I guess, first, the ethical perspective? So
1: I can talk about, you know, from the US perspective, because that's where I am here. Yeah. and. In general we we suspect that more than 100 million animals are experimented on every year in the US alone and worldwide it's at least 200 million animals and we don't have the numbers because there is very little transparency in this regard. I also know that our tax dollars here are paying for most of the animal experimentation that happens in this country and that may be the same in Canada as well. Um, and I suspect that's the same in most countries that conduct animal experimentation. Um, Anyone who tells you that animals are well-protected, you know, and they don't really suffer that much and, and, and all that is, is basically telling you a lie. These animals suffer tremendously. Not only are the experiments themselves incredibly uh, cruel, that not only do they cause incredible pain and suffering, but just the day-to-day reality for these animals is terrible. I mean, these animals live their entire lives in a small cage. Their lives are not their own. They never get a chance to experience sunshine, you know, to walk out and then feel the sun directly on their skins. They never get to feel fresh air. They never get to walk on grass. The basic things we take for granted. These animals will never experience that. And every day they live in fear, stress, anxiety, loneliness, and pain because researchers and technicians are constantly grabbing them, constantly manipulating them, constantly doing things to them, pulling them from the cages, injecting things into their, injecting things into their veins, pulling blood out, maybe pouring, force feeding them. Putting things into their eyes, down, shoving things down their throats, just constant. This is their life, their day-to-day life. It is terrible for these animals. So, and this is despite whatever so-called protections any country we may have. This is the reality of animal experimentation.
0: So it sounds like if there are any laws in place, especially here in the US, since that's what you're speaking to, that the ones that do exist don't really, don't really help the animals in any noticeable way if this is still happening to them and from the other side of the argument there's always people who say that well we need this because we need there needs to be trials to be done before whatever the vaccine or the the item or the makeup or the cosmetic before it goes to market it needs to be tested for that for its safety but i and i've been hearing this for years and years that that the effectiveness of of animal testing is not as reliable as as we think it is
1: You're absolutely right. We now know that 90 to 95% of all drugs and vaccines that are found safe and effective in animals end up being unsafe or ineffective in humans. Now that's a huge, huge failure rate. And so it's like hopping on a plane and a pilot saying that you have 5% chance of landing safely at your destination. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. And so that information that you got that misinformation the outright lie is what has been propagated for years and and for decades by interest groups that want to keep the use of animals in experimentation and so you know you can look back and say yeah 150 years ago you know yeah there were some things we learned without a doubt and some things that were similar if you look at the the fact if you look at how a heart pumps in a cat, it pumps in the same way as it pumps in a human being. But we're not at that level of medical research and medicine and science anymore. I mean, we're so much far more progressed. We're so much more nuanced. And when you think about it, in medical research, I think it's the only science that still holds on to a method that's more than 150 years old. Every other field of science has progressed. And yet we cling to this archaic method, this archaic method, which is using other animals to try to predict what we're going to see in humans in medicine. And you, you know, so the fact is, despite whatever similarities there may be between a human and a dog and a cat and a mouse and a rat and a non-human primate, the problem is there are too many differences. And that's what makes a non-human primate a non-human primate. That's what makes a rat a rat. That's what makes a human a human. And even not all humans are the same. What may be safe and effective in you, Clint, may not be safe and effective in me. So we, there is no reason to continue to do animal experimentation, not even for the human health aspect. We can do so much better. We can have better methods that are much more faithful to actual human biology, not the biology of a rat, a dog, or a monkey, but human biology. The other concern with using unreliable testing methods i.e. animals is that likely drugs maybe even cures drugs that would have been effective and maybe even cures were abandoned early on because they didn't work or were not safe in those animals in whom they were tested but they would have worked and would have been safe in humans if they were ever given the opportunity so that there's a real concern that we actually missed out on cures because of misleading results in animals
0: it's 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 interesting I see especially recently and especially in the nutrition science realm that many people will present an argument whatever it is and then they'll someone will throw up like a mice study and the person against that study or against that point of view will say well no that's just a mouse study that's just it was just done in mice like that's not something that you can use as evidence and then move on and it goes both ways for whatever whoever's arguing what so it seems at least in this space that a lot of researchers or scientists are kind of downplaying it now, which makes me wonder why is it even happening still if if uh, even some of the scientific community is like moving away from it. But um, you mentioned um, in your last answer that there are there are plenty of other methods that are more reliable. Can you can you go into a couple of those for for people who might be unfamiliar with instead of animal testing, what are some other methods that that we can use to replace animal testing?
1: Yeah, so now there's 3D printing fire printing of three-dimensional constructs that are called organoids. They're miniature organs, basically. So you can print a miniature liver, a miniature heart, a miniature kidney, for example, in the lab using human cells. And you can use those organoids to study diseases, to study how those organs function, and to study drug effectiveness and safety in those organs. There's a the probably the most exciting technological advancement that's happened really over the past 10 years is called organ on a chip or body on a chip. And here you're basically creating these three-dimensional architectures, but on these small microchips. And they're three-dimensional, which is an incredible advancement over what traditional, what they call in vitro studies used to be, which were two-dimensional. And these actually function like major components of an organ. So there is a lung on a chip, which actually breathes like a lung and it functions like a major part of a lung. And so again, like with the organoids, these are human cell derived uh, models. So now there are like a lung on a chip, a kidney on a chip, a heart on a chip, a gut on a chip. And you can, you can connect all of these to actually create the body on a chip. So you can actually use these bodies on a chip. These are whole system models, whole body models that you can use to study diseases, to study human biology, and to study the safety and effectiveness of potential treatments. One of the great things about these systems, these methods is that they're actually going to enter us into the era of personalized medicine. And what that means is, as we mentioned before, you know, Clint, what may be safe and effective in you may not necessarily be safe and effective in me. So let's say you and I develop the same cancer, for example. It doesn't mean it really technically is the same cancer, right? It doesn't mean that it runs this course the same way in you as it does in me. It also doesn't mean that the same drugs are going to work against the cancer in you and and, in me. So eventually, and they're starting to do this, they're going to be able to create a Clint body on a chip and an Aisha on a chip using my cells and using your cells and screen drugs against your cancer and against your biology to see if it will be safe in you and same thing with me and so where this is this this is the sophistication we can enter by using methods that go beyond the crude and cruel methods of using animals
0: I, I had no idea that that was even a thing. Is that is that being widely, are those, the organ on a chip, the organoids, are those being widely used now? Or is it still in the process of being accepted, I guess, in, in scientific study?
1: There, I would say that there are more and more labs and more and more academic centers that are popping up all over to start creating and using these methods. Now, they have not been implemented widespread, spread as far as replacing animal testing at this point. But I think it's going to happen over the next 10 years, we're going to see a real tipping point occur in that process. So because they're relatively new, you know, most people were trained using animals. And so they're not trained using these methods. So it's going to take a little bit of some time for people to know, for the next generation of scientists who are going to be learning these new methods to really use them really well in pharmacological development in academic research and elsewhere.
0: So I know that you recently had a hand in the FDA Modernization Act. And if I understand it correctly, it allows the FDA uh, to consider non-animal drug testing methods instead of requiring animal tests for approval. Can you talk to me more about the mechanics of this act and how you were involved with it?
1: Yeah. So I helped draft some of the language and then um, our organization helped build the scientific support. For the legislation, we worked with policymakers. We um, reached out to policymakers to explain the human health benefit of this act, and so on. One of the the what the FDA modernization act does is it goes back to an old 1938 law here in the U.S. that required animal testing for drug development. And what the FDA Modernization Act does is basically it just goes and changes the word animal to non-clinical. So it just kind of expands the options that drug developers could use for testing the safety and effectiveness of drugs and vaccines. So, so that, that, was, that was great because I think when we reached out to policymakers, they all got it. They said, yeah, that just makes absolute sense. This was a depression era law Science has progressed so much. Technology has progressed. The law needs to catch up with the science and technology. We need to allow for more human relevant testing methods to start being used more and more. So it was a it was a huge success. I mean, in in just a little bit over a year, you know, it it was signed into law here in the United States. And that's wonderful. I will say that it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to see changes overnight. Um, because it still leaves the decision-making in the hands of the FDA, meaning that the FDA has to accept the other methods when a drug company, if a drug company wants to propose these other methods of testing. And it's still up to the FDA to say, yeah, okay, we'll we'll accept it. FDA has been incredibly slow and bureaucratic and an impediment, quite honestly, to this change. So in in reality, it, it's not going to lead to changes overnight, but we are working at the Center for Contemporary Sciences to see now what can we do to make this more than just a piece of paper? How can we actually help turn this into a reality so that more drug companies start using these other methods and that the FDA starts accepting these other methods more and more to eventually replace animal testing altogether?
0: And uh, I, I do I do hate to put another dour point on it, but I I'm also American. So like you were just explaining, it does seem that we don't follow science that well <laughs> in the States, especially when it comes to policy and the FDA and things like that. So I, I hope that this really does spur more change. It, I mean, that's great, like you said, but it it does seem that um, following the science first and foremost, isn't necessarily how the government always functions. It's more of the, the lobbyists and the financial interests and things like that. So hopefully things do change instead of science having to play catch up all the time. So, so you mentioned your, your, the organization that you, that you work with the center for contemporary sciences. So this, this uh, FDA act, the modernization act, this is something that uh, your organization has you know helped push and get in place, but it's not just animal testing and things like that, you, you work with a lot of things. It's, it's uh, research methods, preventing pandemics, fighting climate change. There's a whole slew of things that that you work on there. Can you tell me more about the organization, how you got it started, and maybe some of the um, the other files that you've worked on?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I if you haven't been able to detect that already, I was frustrated working at the government. Just so slow, just such an impediment. You know, when I was in the Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats, we were talking about pandemics but we never talked about how to prevent them. All we did was talk about what vaccines and drugs will we need. We never talked about where they can come from and how to prevent them. And that was incredibly, incredibly frustrating. And so so really, you know, I and, and it was frustrating because pandemics stem most likely are going to come always from our use and treatment of other animals. I mean, this pandemic, the COVID pandemic either came from a lab in China um, from experimentation or it came from the live markets in China where animals are traded as part of a larger part of the the wildlife trade and then killed on site. Now that's just a small part of the larger industry throughout the world with the wildlife trade and with animal testing and with so many other factors. But we now know that three-fourths of new infectious diseases, are coming from other animals and it's not their fault. It's coming from other animals because of how we are treating other animals. And we've lived with other animals for, for you know, centuries. We're not, but only now are we really seeing an incredible emergence of new, new viruses coming out more and more so. And that is because of the change in how we relate to other animals because we are industrializing um, our treatment of other animals, because we are abusing them by the millions and billions more than we ever have ever in human history. And so the fact that, um, you know, no one really is really addressing this, and that was really frustrating for me. So the when I was in the army, I left to start the Center for Contemporary Sciences in uh, Sciences in April of 2020. And it was just as the pandemic was starting, which was not planned by any means. But the initial goal was really to focus mostly on trying to replace animal testing, is trying to create an ecosystem that supports the discovery, development, and use of better types of methods that can replace animal testing and improve human health. And then um, actually, just this past few months, we we have expanded our mission to also include these other major threats to human health. So, in a nutshell, the Center for Contemporary Sciences basically attacks three major threats to human health, which is medical research stagnation and drug development stagnation. The second is pandemic threats, and the third is climate change and environmental destruction. And the underlying link with with all of those three kind of separate, seemingly separate issues is our treatment of animals. So pandemics are coming. The next pandemic may come from a factory farm, industrial animal farm, because we now know that the viruses are mutating rapidly in these crowded, dense, miserable spaces in factory farms. We now know that the bird flu is running amok in mink farms in Europe. And the pandemics will continue to be a threat because of the wildlife trade, because of how we treat other animals, um, and the increased interaction we have with other animals who may carry viruses that that we catch. Climate change is incredibly linked, significantly linked to industrial animal farming, to factory farming. I mean, anyone who tries to deny this is, is, is sticking their heads in the sand. We know that. Environmental destruction, water pollution, air pollution, land pollution, the use of our water, the use and degradation of our land are all significantly correlated with industrial animal farming. If not directly with industrial animal farming, indirectly because of all the feed crops that are grown to feed these billions and billions of animals in an incredibly inefficient process. So we're really, you know, we we really want to start to be the scientific organization. Everything we do is based on science and human health aspects to really drive home that we can create a better future for ourselves, a future in which we can prevent the emergence of new pandemics, a future in which we can start to halt this downward spiral that we are creating with our planet and our environment and a future in which we can actually have sophisticated medical research and personalized medic- medicines all without using animals all better without using animals
0: it's also very interesting i find that during the pandemic that you know the focus has been on the the virus itself and the vaccines and and masking and things like that but uh, there again, there's another cognitive dissonance in which you mentioned the two options for how the uh, the origin of COVID nineteen. So you've got either it came from a lab, a testing, or it came from the the open market. Now, I find when most people think about that, they don't necessarily think of if it's coming from a lab that it came from an animal in a lab. I think people in their mind connect it to like a petri dish or something like that. And then with the with the open market, there's also a weird disconnect because if People think about it coming, especially here in the in the West. People think about it coming from an open market in China. They're thinking of like, well, they mentioned the bats or the pangolins. And it's so it's the exotic animals that, you know, that we don't consume in, in the West. And so there's another disconnect. And people don't realize that there's constantly avian flus, there's constantly bird flus all the time. There's swine flus. And these are coming in in the wet. Like we see them all the time in the States and in Canada. They have to put down hundreds of thousands of mink in in Sweden. And now uh, as you alluded to, there, there's there's viruses that are jumping from species to species, from bird to, to to mammal, but even with the the Spanish flu of 1918, the just the name alone misleads people. I, as far as I know, they traced it back to a poultry farm in Kentucky or something like that from the Midwest. So it's everywhere, but nobody really seems to be connecting those dots, like you like you suggest. And that's fair. And I I can imagine having, having worked on pandemics in the past, that that must be very frustrating. Cause again, it's all connected to how we, how we treat animals. And essentially we create the perfect environment for, for this to, to happen. Staying on infectious diseases. Uh, I know you were part of the, uh, the documentary, the end of medicine, which, you know, largely looks at the uh, impact of animal agriculture and, and how it leads to, to infectious diseases. diseases. Can you tell me more about that, the, that documentary and how you got involved there?
1: Um yeah, so I don't I think someone just the the documentary maker, um, Alex Lockwood just reached out to me. I think he saw some articles I had written and reached out to me to ask if I could participate in the film. And of course I I jump every time because I just this information is not getting out there. But the idea was the film was really to really showcase to people where the threats of pandemics and And to some degree, climate change is really happening. It was mostly about pandemics, but um, climate change and antibiotic resistance. And so the the film really goes into how these threats emerge from the factory farming industry and what we can do to really end this or prevent these threats or, or stop these threats. And ultimately, it really comes down to what we eat or who we eat or who we decide not to eat. I mean, that's, you know, you can, we can go on and on about different approaches to reducing factory farming, but factory farming is here. It's going to stay as long as the demand for meat, eggs, and dairy is there. Factory farming will stay. It's a huge worldwide business, huge development, huge trade. Um, our governments, they don't want to talk about it because, I mean, there's, there's it's big business for the US, is big business for Canada, it's big business for China, it's big business for every country that is involved in this trade. And so this film was an attempt to try to bring, you know, bring attention to the issues because our general media dropped the ball. Um, they never or rarely brought up how these how this COVID-19 emerged. Okay? And it goes back to what you said, people think, I still see comments that people think we got it because someone in China ate a bat. And that's that's about the extent uh, extent of knowledge people have about where this virus emerged and where new viruses can emerge. And so there's so much misinformation. The media hasn't been doing its job in really honing in and looking at how these threats emerge. And our governmental and public health agencies have failed us in this regard as well. So the film was an attempt to to bring to light what should have been brought to light by our governmental public health agencies and by our media.
0: So we went over a lot of your career here. I mean, you you were in the you were in the military, you worked for the FDA. you've been involved with preventative medicine, neurology. Uh, and you have your your organization, the the CCS, but you're also an artist, and I kind of wanted to ask you about that. You, you uh, can you tell me about your work and I guess how you describe your style. I, I found some of your stuff online, and it's it's really it's really good. Um, I'm kind of curious about what drew you to to becoming an artist because your background is you know based in science, and usually those things don't go together.
1: I <laughs> Oh, we get to talk about something fun now, <laughs> something lighthearted and fun. Right. Right. Um, I I think I you know as a kid I just always I'm I'm actually more of a dreamy kind of artist person than in, in, than a scientist in some regards. But you know those those personality tests what were they called Myers Briggs personality tests I think they were. Whenever I took them, I was always in the middle. Sometimes I was a little bit more leaning towards the science, and sometimes there's was a little bit more leaning towards the artist. So that that was kind of always me and my personality. I love art. I just I and it's because I just, I am just drawn to the sound of the October wind in the pine trees and the shape of the petunia flower and the, the sounds that animals make. And I, I just, I, I am drawn to nature. And so this was really my attempt to try to capture some of that, that beautiful world around us. And so as an artist, as a kid, I always was doodling these things. Um, and so I just, I, I'm self-taught. I This was, you know, this was the era before internet. I was reading books and just learning on my own and practicing with different kinds of media um, from watercolors to oils to pastels, charcoal, pen and ink. And so I, I just, it was just, it's a, it's a way for me to relax to some degree, just a way for me to, try to embrace in some way the, the world around us and the beauty of the world around us. As far as my style, yeah, you know, I, I know everyone wants to box artists into a certain type of style or technique and that sort of thing. And I'm, I, I, I am so not that. I'm, I'm trying to create a certain type of style. But I just love exploring different ways of doing this. So sometimes my style is a little bit more realistic. Usually it's more, I would say, semi-abstract is, is my style. And it's, it's a couple of times impressionistic, but mostly very expressive. So my style is very expressive. It's not only me trying to capture the world around us, but to try to um, express my emotional connection with the world around us as well.
0: Yeah, that's I when I found when I found your work online, I guess that's how I would describe it as uh, impressionistic. It's very and, and a bit abstract in that way, but it's very it's quite uh, beautiful. Some of the some of the pieces I saw, I thought it was very interesting. I, 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 I'm I not very science based and I'm horrible, horrible at, at things like math and, and that. But I do really, really like art. Uh, and so it's always it's always interesting to talk some some art when you can find somebody who actually is an artist. Before I let you go, and it's been wonderful to chat with you today, uh, I'd I'd love to get your advice for pe- maybe people listening at home who want to get involved in terms of advocacy. So if you could maybe lay out some of, of any advice that you might have for somebody trying to get involved, specifically, you know, like you, you're in the thick of it with with your with your nonprofit. It's sometimes uh, daunting for people to try to get involved. They think there's just so many things going on in the world. How can how can one person make a difference?
1: Yeah, I, I get that feeling. And um sometimes I feel that myself. I think all of us, anyone, anywhere trying to change the world in some way probably feels this and feels that dauntingness. So I would say to 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 those folks, first of all, you're not alone. We all feel it. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what position in life you are, we all feel it. And, you know, the way I look at it is that I can either not do it or do it. And that's basically what it comes down to. And, and you know, what do I want to look back on my life on when, you know, on my deathbed? You know, that I at least tried. I tried. I got up and I tried. And that's the most that any of us can ask of ourselves. And so um, as far as what you can do to start, you can certainly come to our website and you can start small you can start by just sharing our social media posts. If you have, I'm not a huge social media fan, but I do get how it can help in in advocacy work. So, but you can just start by sharing our social media posts, signing up for our newsletter and sharing the newsletter with others. Very small, that's where you can start. And then, you know, we'll have other examples of where you can easily help us um, reach out to Congress members on different bills that are up, or vote um, and we make it as easy for you basically you just plug in your name into a form and it gets sent so we we make it really easy for you to take start taking some actions. so you can start there the other place where you can start is if you're not already doing this if you if you are, have thought about reducing the consumption of animal products or hopefully eliminating it altogether. You can start if it seems too daunting. Start by going to a couple of places that serve non-animal um, uh, products, like going going to some restaurants around around where you live that serve vegan, plant-based foods, and start there. And then you'll get more and more into it, and you know maybe get a recipe book and start learning a little bit more about the wonderful wonderful world of vegetables fruits grains um, and um, what they can do and how healing they can be not only for you but also for the planet and for other animals
0: and i'll make sure that we that we link your the ccs website and all their social media handles there for listeners at home who want to follow aisha thank you so much for joining the plant-based canada podcast it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today
1: thank you so much clint I, i really enjoyed it
0: This podcast featured royalty-free music from bensound.com. A very special thanks to our guests for speaking with us and sharing their insights. And, of course, thank you for listening. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate the public and health professionals on the evidence-based benefits of plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website, www.plantbasedcanada.org, and stay up to date by following us on Instagram and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org and our Plant-Based Canada YouTube channel. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts.